On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. John Wilsey about American exceptionalism. So we cover all sorts of topics like just what is American exceptionalism? How did it come about? Was America founded as a Christian nation? What's the difference between an open and a closed American exceptionalism? What is the difference between religious and political nationalism? Has this played out differently among different American denominations? Has there been any common themes? Should even pastors care about these sort of debates? Why should pastors care about history in general? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can just up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I'm joined with our good friend, Garrett Walden, to be talking to Dr. John Wilsey today. And if you know us, you know that we're a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And in doing that, we've endeavored to create an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. We're not perfect all the time. Sometimes we're cranky instead of charitable, and sometimes we're not as critical as we should be. So we, we, But we try to really strive to do both of those things well. We want to promote this culture that is serious about all those things. Now today with Dr. Wilsey, if you guys don't know him, I'll, I'll let him introduce himself to you here in a second. But just to, we're going to be talking about American except, exceptionalism, and especially his book, American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion. You can go get this on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. I'll link to it so you can find a copy of it. But I think, I mean, there's just constant debates over these sort of topics, especially over the last five to ten years. And I think Dr. Wilsey's done a lot of great historical work on this to really kind of get at the ideas that are going on here. So I think this is going to be a lot of fun. So before we do that, Dr. Wilsey, give me just high-level background. Where are you at now? What do you teach? Uh, And then what made you interested in this subject area? Well, yeah, I've been teaching at Southern for uh, uh, five years now. I came on in 2017. And um, before that, I did a year fellowship at Princeton University with the James Madison program in American Ideals and Institutions. And before that, I was at Southwestern Seminary for about uh, six years. Prior to that, I taught elementary school and um, secondary school. I was a principal for four years, and I was on a pastoral staff for eight years. And I got interested in this particular topic uh, of American uh, nationalism, broadly speaking, uh, as well as American exceptionalism, which are, as we'll see, uh, slightly different. They are distinguishable, but i uh, been working on this um, since uh, about 2005. So uh, coming on about 20 years now, I've uh, been thinking thinking about this. I wrote my dissertation on uh, the question of, did America have a Christian founding? Um, was America founded as a Christian nation? Uh, and this book, American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion, I wrote this in 2014, 2015. And then I wrote a book on John Foster Dulles, which was a religious biography. I spent a chapter talking about him in American Exceptionalism, and I finished that book. And that book came out in 2021. So I've been thinking about this for a long time, and um, it's, uh, it's an interesting topic. It certainly keeps the... Uh, Keeps the uh, mental juices flowing, and uh, you know it's been fun. 
Well, I, I have really enjoyed your book. And so maybe just to kind of get the conversation started, would you help us understand a, a solid definition of American exceptionalism? Maybe where did that term come about and how is it different from nationalism and maybe patriotism? Well, I'm going to, to uh, automatically on the first five minutes of the uh, podcast uh, uh, make it clear that I'm not going to satisfy y'all's uh, reader uh, or listenership, uh, not going to satisfy everybody. Uh, the definition of exceptionalism is very slippery, uh, very slippery. In fact, there's a new book uh, by a historian that I greatly admire, Ian Terrell, Australian um, historian. And he makes the point in his, uh, his book uh, that American exceptionalism, he says, is a historically contingent and, sh- and slippery idea, which I, I definitely agree with. Uh, broadly speaking, we can say that exceptionalism uh, is, uh, American exceptionalism is the idea that America is exceptional. It's distinct from all other nations. Uh, it, has a, um, it has a distinct and unique and special uh, founding. Uh, the circumstance of its founding, so historically, it's a it's a exceptional nation in in that it's the only or the first nation, I should say, uh, that is um, uh, founded um, as a result of a secession from an imperial uh, from an imperial system, a mother country. It's not the only, but it is the first. It's exceptional in the, in the sense that it was founded um, uh, during the Enlightenment period but before the Industrial Revolution, which I think is also very key. Um, And the argument that I make in exceptionalism and civil religion is that uh, American exceptionalism can either be thought of in terms of difference, uniqueness, or in terms of um, the concept of being special. Uh, That is, uh, even that, um, even that formulation that I present and I, I follow other other scholars in that. I'm not the that's not original to me, but even that uh, concept, um, even uh, Ian Terrell argues that that's a uh, a false dilemma. I, I disagree with that, but uh, he argues that that's a false dilemma. But I think it's a very helpful way for us to distinguish. And when he argues it's a false dilemma, I think it's a little bit splitting hairs. I think it is. Um, I think it's a, a good case can be made historically um, and sociologically that exceptionalism embraces these two concepts, different or, or unique, is more broad, more generic, special is more particular, and it also carries with it more, uh, shall we say, ontological, metaphysical commitments. Now, uh, nationalism is distinguishable from exceptionalism in that it is a little bit, little bit more narrow of a concept, and it also applies directly to... Um, it apply well. Nationalism is also slippery. Let me read you a, a definition from a um, a scholar named uh, Richard Taruskin, and and Taruskin is a um, historian of music. But he wrote a um, he wrote a really great article on nationalism. This is his definition: a doctrine or theory according to which the primary determinant of human character and destiny, and the primary object of social and political allegiance, is the particular nation to which an individual belongs. So how do nationalism and exceptionalism relate to one another? Well, uh, nationalism is a belief uh, uh, that's um, part of American exceptionalism. Um, 
American exceptionalism uh, depends on an American nationalism, and they're sort of concomitant to one another. Um, exceptionalism is American exceptional is a national exceptionalism. It is a nationalistic kind of understanding or identification uh, of the nation that this nation, this uh, nationality, uh, is uh, unique. It's different or it's special. It's uh, marked off by God, um, by uh, uh, you know, by providential purposes uh, to be different. Um, from other nations. And then patriotism. Patriot, patriotism is a little different than, than both of these as well, but there, you know, if we were to draw a Venn diagram, we, we'd be able to see some overlap and some distinctions between all these three categories. But I argue that nationalism um, and exceptionalism both, what they have in common is that they describe what a nation is. They describe what, what America is. So it's a descriptive term, and in some ways can be prescriptive uh, once we get into a, a nationalist, a, a religiously nationalistic conception. Uh, and in some sense, politically uh, nationalistic conceptions can be prescriptive as well. But ultimately, nationalism and exceptionalism are descriptive terms. They tell us what we are, where, who we've been in the past, and what we hope to be in the future. Patriotism is uh, it, it, it indicates a feeling of devotion towards the nation. It, it isn't as much, I mean, it can be, I mean, for some, in some certain circumstances, it, it can be a, a, a way to describe the nation. But, but patriotism, uh, this is uh, my, my cat Jack, he likes to walk around. Um, patriotism is an expression of devotion. It's a feeling. Um, it's a, uh, and that, that expression of devotion can take many different forms. Uh, patriotism is active. It's the active expression of what the nation is. And it's, um, it, it, it carries with it a great deal of, of feeling. Um, when you hear the national anthem played, um, very few people are ambivalent to the national anthem. Um, we go to a baseball game and the national anthem is struck up. You know, you, you, if you look around you, um, people's response is, is uh, very interesting to look at. Some people are very moved by it. Um, if they're veterans or if they're active military people around or policemen, firemen, something like that, they're, they're the ones that, um, you know, snap to, they might salute. Um, sometimes people, most people, I think, put their hand on their heart, although some don't. Some people don't know they're supposed to, and some people don't because they have a negative view. Some people sing, some people don't. Uh, some people sing because they uh, feel devotion. Others don't sing because they uh, feel something else. Anyway, um, patriotism is an application um, based on devotion, based on feelings of uh, nationalism and exceptionalism. These are, these are again, these are going to be definitions. These are going to be categories that we can talk about and debate and uh, have a great deal of conversation about. Um, but these are basically what I understand that they mean. So Dr. Wilsey, would you say that patriotism is a virtue that someone ought to have? And if they don't have some kind of patriotism, it's not a good thing? Or is, is it like maybe morally neutral? It's definitely not morally neutral. And I do believe it is a virtue. I think it is related to the virtues of 
of faith, hope, and love, the cardinal virtues, uh, because they're expressions of those virtues. Uh, there's hope, and there's faith, and there's love that's wrapped up in patriotism. And uh, for that reason, I think it is a virtue. And um, I don't think that you can be ambivalent about uh, your country. I don't think anybody is ambivalent about uh, their country, even people who are critical of it, even people who don't like it or hate it or uh, would like to renounce their citizenship. Uh, even that is an expression of deep feeling. Um, but but at, when you ask, is it is it a virtue? I, I def definitely believe that it is and always has been. And, and it is not just for Americans. So that does lead me to a question I've had as you've been giving the definitions here. What's unique about the American aspect of it? Because like you said, I think everybody has some level of, of patriotism or nationalism towards their own their own country. They like themselves. They like their neighbors. I mean, that's I think that's a, a normal, natural thing to like the people you're around, except, I guess, in the Internet age, maybe. But So what is it that makes America different than others when it comes to this exceptionalism? Are you asking me as a historical question, or are you asking me in terms of what people think today? I would say as a matter of historical question. Well, from, from the earliest uh, colonial foundings, um, especially in Puritan New England, um, there has always been a sense of superiority uh, among the uh, earliest colonists and then later in the early national period. Um, because people were getting away from something. They were, they were intentionally coming to these shores. Um, those who settled in New England were intentionally leaving England for, uh, you know, for, uh, in the pursuit of uh, a greater religious freedom, in the pursuit of establishing a true Christian commonwealth. Um, they were fleeing persecution in many, in many ways. Um, they were seeking economic uh, independence and, and freedom. They were seeking new opportunities for themselves. And once they got here, um, they began to have a, a, a sense. It didn't take long for them to, to gain a sense of their separateness from the mother country. Um, and this is seen especially in the fact that they had uh, unique challenges in front of them as soon as they got here. They had to clear a wilderness. They had to um, establish... Uh, a survivable uh, living arrangement for themselves, and they had to uh, treat with the uh, indigenous people. Now, of course, not everybody came here voluntarily. Not everybody came here uh, according to their own will. Of course, you have Africans who are brought here against their will. And so you have a very substantial group of people who are brought here, and they uh, did not want to come. They were kidnapped and brought here and sold into slavery. Um, uh, and so we always have to remember uh, that, that that particular group of people uh, is also part uh, of the formation of American identity. And, um, but, for the, but for the white colonists, that was uh, early on. And, and then once you get into the colonial wars in the 1680s, 1690s, all the way through to the 1760s, you have the development of a, of a greater sense of a, of a, of a distinct identity from Britain. There's loyalty to the British crown, of course, all the way to 1763, to the end of the French and Indian War. But their, their identity as separate and distinct from the mother country is emerging during that century or century and a half. Uh, by the time you get to the revolution, there is a sense of superiority 
among Americans that is birthed out of the experience of declaring independence and breaking from the mother country. And it isn't hard to see that in the, in the, in the documents that we have. Um, you don't have to do a whole lot of study. You don't have to do deep archival work to see that reflected. You could just read the Declaration of Independence and see that, uh, that Americans consider themselves to be just, consider their cause to be just, and consider their enemies to be wicked. And uh, to understand their enemies to be uh, not just evil and not just wicked and not just opposed to them, but uh, the forces of Antichrist and uh, also maybe even uh, demonic forces as well. And, th- and that, that feeling will be extended to every enemy and every adversary Americans will ever have all the way into our own day. So um, exceptionalism, the idea of being different and the idea of being special uh, we, we can see those things expressed uh, all the way to the colonial founding, and certainly you know, by, by the Revolutionary War, we see those uh, expressions become uh, very pointed and very intense. I want to follow up on that just for a moment. You mentioned kind of the sense of American superiority in the founding. Is, would there be anything geographical about that in terms of like the potential of the land or is it more the spirit of the American? (laughs) Yes. And yes, you know, uh, you know, it's real interesting. The, the Puritan, uh, the Puritans of new England, um, did not see any kind of coincidence that the discovery of America took place right around the time of the reformation and that the establishment of the New England colonies was taking place when it did, uh, at the end of Tudor rule with the death of Elizabeth and the rise of the Stuarts, who were seen by the Puritans, of course, as being uh, Catholic and and servants of Antichrist. Um, And the opening up of the North American continent to what they would have called the civilized world, uh, taking place as it did uh, roughly the same time as the Reformation, was um, indicative of, of many of the Puritan preachers of the 17th century and the 18th century, that, that God was um, uh, bringing about, uh, truly, the, the, the millennium and the final days. And, and, and the, the, the idea and the concept, biblical, concept, biblical concept of the millennium is very potent. It's a very potent concept in American identity. Um, there's a very good book that I recommend uh, to your listeners it's an older book. It was published in 1968, but it's a still a, kind of a classic. It's called, uh, well, it's written by uh, Ernest Lee Tuveson, T-U-V-E-S-O-N. Uh, and the book is called, uh, oh, oh, fiddlesticks. Uh, the name of the book is escaping me. I'm going to have to look it up. I'll look it up and add it to the show notes. Yeah, add it to the show, but uh, the show notes. But Ernest Lee Tuveson's book, um, I can't believe I'm forgetting forgetting the title of this book. It's just uh, slipped my mind completely. It's sitting on my shelf at, at, at my office. Anyway, um, he 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 um, he identifies the millennium as very very important in the early formation of American identity, and will be all the way through the 18th century and the 19th century. Um, and and by the time you get to the Civil War, um, the concept of the millennium is sort of played out in uh, uh, American identity formation. But it's a very potent idea for, um, for over a century, century and a half. Is it Redeemer so, Nation? Um, it's, absolutely. Redeemer Nation. Okay. That's the name of it. 
another important figure in this is Alexis de Tocqueville. Uh, in his Democracy in America, of course, he's a Frenchman and he's a visitor to America in, the, in 1831, 32. He makes the point that, uh, uh, that American geography, the geography of North America is essential to the, to the formation of an American identity as well. He says very famously that, uh, that the Puritans were the first Americans. He compares the first Puritan to set foot on North American shores as something like, a, like an atom. Uh, a first man, like a first American. And uh, he, he, uh, he saw uh, great significance in the geographic distance of um, the North American continent, 3,000 miles away from Europe. You know, and, and America does, the United States does from its earliest uh, days, its earliest history, is separated from any potential enemies by geography. Uh, the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, and the absence of any real serious threats to its existence on the North American continent uh, gives the nation the freedom to expand and extend its boundaries and its influence and its power. Uh, and and America is really not threatened by any uh, major power in Asia or in Europe until, as you well know, uh, the middle of the 20th century. So talk to me a little bit about the difference between, I mean, we, we've talked exceptionalism, we've talked nationalism and patriotism. I want to know the difference in your mind between religious and political nationalism. Is there a distinction? Should there be a distinction? And what is it? Yes, there is a very sharp distinction. Um, and this is one, of, I think, one of the problems that occurs in the, uh, in the ongoing um, discussions and and articles and uh, podcast interviews and uh, tweets, especially books that are written, is that there's very uh, there's very limited um, parsing out of the of the many nuances of nationalism and of exceptionalism. Uh, political nationalism. I, I I try to argue that political nationalism um, is distinct from religious nationalism. Um, and let me illustrate it by, by asking this question. And I asked this question in my classes at, at, at seminary. Uh, I would say to the students, how many of you would subscribe to Article 6 of the Constitution, the Supremacy Clause? Um, the idea that the Constitution is the highest law of the land. And of course, you know, everybody's going to, everybody raises their hand. There isn't, I've never had a single student ever dispute that, uh, to say no, um, in terms of, uh, the law of the land, the civil law of the land, um, not even the president, not the Congress, not the federal, no, no branch of the federal government can supersede the constitution. If you subscribe to the, to that, then you're a nationalist. Another way to put it is, uh, raise your hand if you're glad that the Union uh, won the Civil War and defeated the Confederacy. Uh, everybody's going to raise their hand. I've never had anybody that, that uh, regret, never knew anybody um, since, you know, my grandparents' generation <laughs> that, that uh, regretted the loss of the Confederate States of America in the Civil War. So that makes you a nationalist. That makes you a nationalist. If, if, you, um, if you even use the term United States of America 
in the singular and refer to it as a nation. You are in some way a nationalist. You're subscribing to a national idea. And that's really what we mean when we say political nationalism, even social, sort of a social national, a cultural nationalism. We call baseball the national pastime. Uh, that's a nationalistic expression. Uh, if you go to Washington, D.C., you visit uh, the Washington Monument, you visit uh, the, the Lincoln Memorial, um, you go to these places, you go to Arlington Cemetery, and you see these places. Um, if you subscribe to the ideas that are, say, inscribed on the walls of the Lincoln Memorial, uh, Lincoln's uh, Gettysburg Address and Second Inaugural, then you're a, you're a nationalist. Um, if you are an enemy of the Union, uh, if you are rooting for the destruction of the United States in some way, if you're a, a, a secessionist, then, okay, you're not a nationalist. You're not an American nationalist. You might be a Texan nationalist. <laughs> you might be a Californian nationalist. Um, but, it, but provided that you don't do any of those things, provided that you're, on, you're kind of on this side of sanity, uh, you, you are an American nationalist. And that's, that's political nationalism. And political nationalism takes a long time to develop. We fought a civil war um, to kind of hash out what political nationalism would, would be defined by. Religious nationalism is a different breed of cat, as they say. Um, religious nationalism, and this is what I argue in the book, this is what I sort of talk about with closed American exceptionalism. And religious nationalism would be an expression of that. Uh, I, de I identify five theological themes in uh, closed American exceptionalism and what I think can also be called uh, religious nationalism. Um, First of all, the commitment that America was chosen by God, something like a new Israel, uh, and, uh, and that we were chosen not to, as the way I say it in the book, we were chosen not to just uh, to be something, but we were chosen to do something. This is where American mission comes into play, that God has given Americans a, a, a particular task in the world to complete. And generally speaking, I mean, that's been uh, expressed in, in different ways and in different historical concept, contexts. But generally speaking, that mission has been to spread democracy across uh, the world. Uh, another idea is that America is innocent. It's morally pure. So by, uh, by um, simply taking an action, doing something, having an idea, if it's an American idea, if it's an American action in the world, it is by... Um, by virtue of the fact that Americans did it, it is by nature right and innocent and pure. Um, also, that the land itself is a sacred land. You asked about geography and separation. Well, yeah, the land itself is sacred. Uh, the land itself is something like a new Canaan. Uh, the early Puritans in the 17th century preached sermons about how, uh, you know, this is some, something of a recapitulation of the... Um, Israelites uh, going into Canaan and taking the promised land. Um, also, the idea that America is some, something of a stage on which God is about to bring about the millennium, bring about his eternal purposes in the world. He's going to do it here in America. Uh, so the land itself has can have a very sacred kind of connotation. And, um, and, and lastly, the idea that America has a, a glorious past, uh, a golden age. Um, and um, that that golden age is something that we've lost and we have to, uh, we have to recover in some way. Uh, 
So those are, uh, those are some, some ways that religious nationalism ex- is expressed in American history, and they're broad concepts, and they're expressed differently over time. But we do see all of those uh, religious uh, themes um, manifest themselves uh, over the last 250 years, for, for sure. So I feel like over the last year, I've seen more people use the term Christian nationalism than I can recall in my entire life. Um, (laughs) Are are they picking up on some of these more historical themes, or has it been almost just, this is a a helpful descriptor for what I'm trying to explain here, and it doesn't have the historical lineage or connection? Um, Or is it just a mix of all of it? So for me, looking at the landscape, it seems like I have no idea what anybody means by it. It's different for every person. Mm. So I'd be curious to know, in your opinion, how does it map back on to this historical sort of definition? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's comp- very complex, the ways that people have you know, talked about Christian nationalism over the course of the last couple of years. The literature of Christian nationalism uh, started out in about 2006. Um, I believe the first scholar to, to use the term Christian nationalism to write a book-length treatment of is Michelle Goldberg uh, in 2006. Uh, but you're right. Uh, this has not been a – it's not been a term that's been used and it's not been employed sort of in the popular um, dialogue and the popular imagination it hasn't had a lot of uh, – ha- hasn't had a large presence. Uh, my book sales um, – you know, weren't that great until uh, 2021, January 6th, 2021. <laughs> it's funny to kind of look at at my Amazon book sales uh, history of sales. You know, they just, wow, it just has a pretty big spike. <laughs> I guess that's a good thing. I, I, I wish it wasn't under those circumstances. But there are a lot of books that have come out in the last couple of years on Christian National. Some of the most uh, noteworthy books, uh, Andrew Whitehead, Samuel Perry, uh, wrote uh, a very, very good, serious attempt to sort of address Christian nationalism in America in contemporary times called Taking America Back for God, uh, Christian Nationalism in the United States, I think is the name, is the name of the book. came out in 2020. And uh, they wrote a very, uh, a very carefully researched uh, book based on the, uh, on the uh, study of American religion that was conducted by Baylor uh, University, sociological study. And they have sort of a, a score sheet uh, that you can sort of rank yourself and you can sort of rate yourself based on uh, four or five questions about, you know, um, American identity. Uh, ultimately, I, 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 um, while I, I really applaud their effort and respect their uh, work as sociologists, um, they are not historians and they, their book was not an attempt to address this issue from a historical perspective. They're looking to take sort of taking a snapshot, um, try to explain this uh, phenomenon. And then when, when January 6th occurred, um, you know, their book really did take center stage. Um, John Fia wrote a book in 2011, came out in 2011, called Was America Founded as a Christian Nation? Uh, a historical introduction. Now, now Fia's book um, really does treat the issue of Christian nationalism as a historical uh, topic, and in fact, it's it's a, it's it's uh, one of the best books on the subject. It's an excellent book because 
what he does is he tries to use this issue of or this question, was America founded as a Christian nation? And he tries to um, uh, help the reader to think about that question historically uh, through the lens of uh, the five C's of historical thinking, change over time and context, cause and effect relationships, historical contingency and uh, complexity. Uh, others have written books. There's a new book by Paul Miller called The Religion of American Greatness. Paul Miller is a political scientist at Georgetown, and he does have a, a, a pretty long section on the historical treatment of Christian nationalism, although I think most of his concern is uh, this as a political idea um, and how it's manifested itself in the political life of the nation. Um, then there's uh, Mark David Hall, who wrote Did America Have a Christian Founding? That book came out in 2019, and that book is a lot like Fia's book. But I think that book is really interesting because he's asking uh, a, a different kind of question. He's asking, like, whereas Fia said, was America founded as a Christian nation? You know, he gets to the end of the book. I, I hate to have a spoiler alert here, but, you know, he comes to the end, and he doesn't ever really answer the question. He says, this is a complex historical question. Whereas, did America have a Christian founding? That's a different question altogether. It's a subtle difference, but it's, uh, it's a very interesting thing. It's, very, it's a different question. And the answer, of course, is yes, it does. And that's certainly uh, uh, Mark's uh, conclusion that he draws. But Christianity is a very important intellectual uh, force in the formation of the American nation and American identity from the colonial period all the way through the uh, early national period. Now, Professor Hall is a political scientist as well, but he does a lot of historical work. Uh, we could go on and on with titles, but um, uh, you, know, you, you have sociologists working on this. You have historians working on this. You have political theorists and political scientists working on this. And uh, that gives you an indication of how, how hard it is to pin down what is this thing called Christian nationalism? It's, people try to simplify it in the popular dialogue. But as soon as you try to simplify it, it only gets messier and more contentious. Yeah, I certainly, I certainly see that. And so I'm a pastor, and I know we have a lot of other pastors who listen along to the podcast. Um, mm. you, you mentioned at one point in the introduction of your book that there are certain views of American exceptionalism that um, at, at significant points are at odds with the Christian gospel. And I was wondering if you could, I don't know, is, is there any ad advice or counsel you would give to pastors who are, you know, these uh, these topics, these, ter these terms have kind of come out of the literature and into more common usage. Is Are these concepts that we should try to affirm and define really carefully? Or it's is the terrain just too filled with landmines that we should probably just come up with something different? Or how would you kind of help us understand where these ideas go out of step with the gospel? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's pretty much uh, the thrust of, I think, of our interview here. Um, I, I am very concerned uh, that Christian nationalism can and does often lead to idolatry and lead to placing of the nation um, in a place that it, it never was intended to have. 
And, you know, this is where I think, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of good work done on this as well. There's another book by Stephen Smith called Reclaiming Patriotism in an Age of Extremes. Uh, anyway, what I'll say about that is that um, it's very, I think it's necessary for us to think about patriotism in proper terms. And you asked earlier, is patriotism a virtue? And this is, I think, where the conversation can really be helpful for pastors and to help pastors really to guide their people into how to think about Christian nationalism, how to think about what is, you know, how do we, how do we think about our country? And um, we, we have to think about it as a, as a rightly ordered love in an Augustinian sense. Um, we, we love our country. Um, we are certainly ready and willing to sacrifice for our country, to sacrifice uh, our, our wealth, to sacrifice our livelihood, to sacrifice even our lives, to protect it. Um, but those things don't mean that we're uh, putting the country ahead of our loyalty to God. Uh, it doesn't mean we're putting our citizenship in America ahead of our citizenship in heaven. It can mean that if we, uh, if we have a disordered uh, love for our country. Um, but if our, if our love for our country is rightly ordered, uh, then uh, our love for country, uh, the concept of God and country, uh, can be very, very helpful. But certainly, uh, it's very concerning to see uh, people sort of conflate their citizenship in America with their citizenship in heaven. And they, they can't be conflated, and they can't be equated. They have to be ordered. And pastors need to teach their, their congregations how to do that. And, and that's what pastors do every, every day. Uh, they do that every day in their counseling, when they talk about husbands loving their wives, when they talk about the relationship that parents have with their children, talking about uh, commitment and devotion to the church, all, all these things pastors do make, make their whole day about uh, uh, counseling and preaching and teaching their, their people how to love, how to order their loves. Uh, ordering a love for the country fits into those loves. And yes, we have to be, uh, we all, not just pastors, but all, all thinkers, all Christian thinkers and responsible citizens need to think about that. Um, and that's where I think it's been helpful for people uh, who, like Stephen Smith, who have done a good job of saying, okay, here you have nationalism, here you have patriotism, here you have cosmopolitanism, you know, sort of a globalism, uh, citizen of the world type thing, uh, where patriotism is a, is a good medium uh, between those extremes. His, his idea of extremes comes from uh, cosmopolitanism on the one extreme, nationalism on the other extreme, when he talks about nationalism, he's really referring to the idolatrous religious nationalism uh, that is fanatical. Um, so, yes, I think that we, uh, we have a duty and a responsibility to, to simply add uh, patriotism and country to the other loves that we have and, and order uh, in our lives as, as believers and followers of Christ. So one thing I'm pretty curious about is this idea of American exceptionalism and how it played out in different religious contexts in America. Are there differing re responses and views of it depending on the denom denomination you're in? Or is there a bigger, like, you know, you could say, regardless of de denomination, if you're evangelical in this classic sort of sense, then you had this sort of feeling towards it. Or how does, how does that end up looking? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question and a long question. We could have an entire hour discuss that. Um, 
early early formation of American identity is is going to uh, emerge uh, not only out of the political uh, context of the 18th century, but also the religious context, the, the First Great Awakening. Uh, the First Great Awakening, um, some people want to make the First Great Awakening, you know, the sort of the, the cause of the American Revolution. That's, that's too simplistic. But, uh, but the ideas of the First Great Awakening, namely uh, the rethinking of what authority looks like, what righteous and just authority looks like, and especially church authority, ecclesial authority, uh, that's going to, uh, of course, be a, a, a major issue in the 1730s. Um, and then political authority will become an issue in the 1770s and 80s. So they're not exactly the same thing, but there's a, in the 18th century, there is a trend in America to reorient and uh, uh, sort of interrogate the meaning of, of authority and to think about authority in a more modern sense uh, as opposed to an older, more pre-modern sense. Then the Second Great Awakening, which is going to get underway in the first decade of the 1800s, and in some, you know, in some way you see expressions of the Second Great Awakening all the way through to the Civil War. Um, those are going to be really important in American identity formation. And then when you think about the Awakenings, what do they produce? They produce denominationalism. Uh, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, uh, the Christian Church, all these denominations, of course, are going to emerge out of the Awakenings, and their growth is going to be accelerated as a result of the inauguration of the mission movement, uh, the modern mission movement that gets underway in the 1790s and continues uh, into the 19th century. All those things are going to have a, a strong bearing um, particularly among Congregationalists, Presbyterians, even to a certain extent Baptists, Methodists, uh, any denomination that's going to be deeply engaged in missions, home missions, foreign missions, um, is going to be concerned with the idea of civilization. Civilization is going to be a very important concept in the 19th century, the spreading of civilization, where Anglo-American culture and civilization, including the church, including Christianity, is all going to be part and parcel with proclamation of the gospel. And um, that's going to be a process that's going to be taking place as the United States expands territorially in North America. It's going to take very various uh, uh, forms according to historical, uh, you know, historical uh, context. Um, and then there's also going to be um, ramifications on the global stage as uh, American influence will extend into the Pacific and into, into Asia. Now, each of these denominations will have a different sort of idea about their sort of relationship to civilization. Uh, most of my work has been done. I'm a Baptist, uh, obviously, but most, I, I guess, ironically, most of my, most of my work and research in this has been in Presbyterians. <laughs> Uh, particularly with uh, John Foster Dulles, who was Secretary of State under Eisenhower in the 20th century. Um, but uh, Dulles came from a long line of Presbyterians uh, on both sides of his family, particularly his father's side were missionaries and, and theologians and pastors. And one thing that strikes me about Presbyterians is that Presbyterians in America in the 19th century, turn of the 19th century into the 20th, and well into the 20th, to a certain extent, uh, certainly today, 
is that Presbyterians have a very strong, sort of a uniquely strong sense of duty. Uh, now, all denominations do. All denominations have a strong sense of duty, and that's going to be informed by their reading of the New Testament and a Christian ethic. Um, but Presbyterians have a very strong def- uh, understanding of duty. Um, you know, the idea that if you, if you want to feel like you've uh, had a meaningful day, then go wash the dishes. If you want to feel like you've done something for the Lord, then wash the dishes, vacuum the floor, you know, pick up, uh, um, you know, pick up after yourself, something even as small and, and ordinary as that. Uh, Presbyterians have a very strong sense of this. And uh, American mission in the world is going to be seen not just in terms of fulfilling the Great Commission and winning converts uh, to Christ, uh, saving souls. Uh, for, for Presbyterians, uh, the, the Great Commission is not just going to be sort of spiritualized. It's also going to have a very strong sort of disworldly emphasis as well. So what you find with Presbyterians is, in particular, is that they, especially in the 19th century, 20th century, they're deeply engaged in politics, in economics, in uh, social improvement, as well as in uh, preaching and biblical exposition and uh, the mission field, mission work, Christian missionary work. And they see all these things as part and parcel to um, a missionary enterprise. Um, Baptists have had an interesting sort of perspective on this. Um, you know, Baptists uh, are, are a little bit more, um, a little bit more focused on uh, the salvation of souls, and uh, don't have the same kind of sort of holistic view of the Christian mission as Presbyterians do. Um, Baptists are politically engaged, but they're you know they're. Their big issue, especially in the 18th century and into the 19th century, is going to be religious freedom. Um, that's going to be a very important element in the formation of American identity. But it's not quite the same thing as this sort of expression of duty, uh, your Christian duty to your fellow man. I mean, certainly religious freedom has that application. But there's going to be some sort of subtle differences, right, The way between the way Baptists and, and Presbyterians sort of view um, political engagement as well as theological engagement. You get into the 19th century and the 20th century with the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Once you get fundamentalism into the mix, of course, fundamentalists are going to, uh, you know, they're famously associated with sort of withdrawing into themselves. that's, I think that's a little bit simplistic, too, because fundamentalists are also deeply concerned about international missions. Um, but, but with evangelicalism forming in the 1940, late 40s into the 50s and 60s uh, in particular, uh, you, you begin to see uh, conser- conservative um, Christians become more careful about the way they think about American identity, especially in the context of the Cold War and anti-communism and uh, uh, contentious issues like the Vietnam conflict and, and so forth and nuclear disarmament, those kind of things once you get into the 70s and 80s. Uh, the, fund, the conservatives, fundamentalist evangelicals become very uh, anti-communist and, uh, and uh, in support of uh, 
ideas like peace through strength that you'll find in the 1980s and Reagan's foreign policy and, and so forth. So I think you said like five things that I want to ask about, but I'm going to refrain and I'm going to ask you this question. You teach at a seminary. We have a lot of pastors who listen, like Garrett said, uh, a lot of aspiring pastors. What are the one or two history books that you say, pastors, you need to read this book. It's going to benefit your ministry in some way. Oh, man, you're really putting me on the spot. Uh, you wrote a book about this. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, give me a break, right? You got to read my book. Uh, American Exceptionalism, Civil Religion. Um, uh, let's see. Can you can you give me just a minute? I want to be I want to be really helpful on this. I want to be careful yeah. about what I say. Okay, I'm gonna give you three books. So you asked me uh, what uh, what are some books uh, for pastors that serve as resources in thinking about the topic of exceptionalism, patriotism, nationalism. So the first book that I'll give you as a uh, recommendation uh, is written by a pastor, um, Adam Wyatt. Uh, his, his book, which is a new book, came out uh, in late 2021, entitled Biblical Patriotism, an Evangelical Alternative to Nationalism. And um, I'll, I'll recommend his book alongside of the Stephen Smith book that I mentioned earlier, Reclaiming Patriotism in an Age of Extremes. Now, Stephen Smith, he's a Yale professor, and he's Jewish, so he's writing from that perspective. Um, it's a great book. Uh, Adam Wyatt's book is, is similar to that in that he does sort of contrast biblical patriotism with nationalism and cosmopolitanism. But he does so in a much more explicit uh uh, from a from a much more explicit starting point, it's Christian, and writing as a pastor, uh, that's you know his audience is going to be other pastors and laypersons in the church, whereas Stephen Smith's book's great too, <clears throat> but that's not <clears throat> excuse me that's not his his audience is 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 much different. So I'd say um, Adam Wyatt's book, Stephen Smith's book, they're excellent resources. If you had to pick one, I'd pick uh, Biblical Patriotism as a resource for pastors. Uh, another very, very good book, and I mentioned it earlier, is Mark David Hall's book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Um, and again, as I said, it's a, it's a new, sort of a different way to ask the question. Uh, instead of asking, was America founded as a Christian nation? Um, which is, which I have a book about that too, and I say no. Uh, America was founded as a nation with religious freedom, um, and it can be easy to confuse, you know, um, the founding generation's emphasis on the importance and necessity of religion in a republic with, oh, we had a Christian, we, we are a Christian nation. But I think Mark David Hall's book, Did America Have a Christian Founding, is even a much, a much better way to ask the question, and he is much more precise in his historical consideration of the question. Of course, he's going to answer, and I think correctly, the answer is yes to that, uh, because he's going to trace the great, great influence that the Bible will have 
on the founding. Uh, I'll just say one, one quick word about this. Among all the sources that the founding generation will cite from 1763 to 1805, and there's going to be sources from the Enlightenment, sources from uh, classical um, antiquity, sources from the common law tradition in England. Um, certainly John Locke will be an important source. The Bible is by far uh, the most cited source, and it's not even close. So Hall will address a lot of that in his book. And then lastly, and this is not a book that really drives at this question directly, but this book is so important. It's uh, Alan Gelzo's book, his uh, biography of Abraham Lincoln, uh, called Redeemer President. And there's a revised new edition that's coming out in November of uh, Gelzo's book. Uh, G-U-E-L-Z-O. And the reason why I bring up his book, it's a religious biography, it's an intellectual biography of Abraham Lincoln. And if you really want to look at, I think this is what Gelzo uh, would affirm as well, if you really want to look at sort of what, what would a model patriot look like? I mean, we can always say Washington and people like that, but but in a time of existential, true existential crisis. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, I think, is one of the most consistent, uh, one of the most um, sophisticated uh, models of what patriotism really should look like in the sense that he casts America in relationship to God, um, in relationship to other nations, and as he thinks about the people in America with, in relationship to one another in a, in a context where Americans were fighting one another and divided, um, how he expresses true patriotic devotion, I think is a good model for us. Abraham Lincoln, I think, is a, a, parag a paragon for what real, really healthy patriotism should look like. And, and you won't find a better intellectual and religious biography of Abraham Lincoln than Alan Galzo's book. So those three, really four, I, I would say, are great resources for pastors. I teach pastors. I mean, that's what I do. I've been on pastoral staff. I was on pastoral staff for um, a total of 11 years. Um, so... I'm interested in this topic because it's so important uh, to the church uh, as we think about, um, you know, uh, our citizenship, our eternal citizenship, and our temporal citizenship. That's good. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about this topic. Uh, and for everybody who's listening, as you know, you can go click on the links, find his book, find the other books that we've mentioned here. I encourage you to do that. I uh, encourage you to check out the other writing that Dr. Wilsey does. I'm sure he'll publish more books in the future, so you have to keep up to date on those as well. Um, he's a careful thinker and one that does it virtuously, so I commend all of his works to you. And everybody who's been listening, as you know, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. 
Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.